Well, good morning. We'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 1 today. Matthew chapter 1, we'll have uh, a look at a couple things in Isaiah, but we'll mostly be camped out right there in Matthew chapter 1, speaking of Joseph. And something we want to consider as we bring this text to light here, starting in verse 18 and, and following, where it really focuses in on Joseph and his role in the whole Christmas story and the bringing forth of Christ and everything else. Uh, it's important to ask questions and, and to make observations. And some of the questions we might want to ask is, you know, what was so special about this birth? How do we know it to be true? Because indeed, it's, if it, the account is to be, be believed, what we see in scriptures and what we hold as tradition within the church, if these things are to be believed, then this event is truly unique among all births in the world. But as we look at the text today, what you're going to see is as unique as this event was of the birth of Jesus Christ, it fits into a pattern that we see throughout all of Scripture and we see in the lives of all believers, even to this day. And so be aware of those things, be looking at those things in the text as they're pointed out as we go through, and we'll be able to see a great pattern here that has complete relevance to our lives today. So join me in uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to go through verse 25, and we'll be handling some of the material that follows that, so keep your, your Bibles open if you've got one with you. What we're going to see is that when God works in the world, He does it by the power of His Holy Spirit, through His holy people, and according to his holy word. Look at this as we see it in the text today. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, let's begin with word prayer. Father God, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your servant Joseph, and all that you accomplish through him to make yourself known and bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to do what we could not and to do it on our behalf. We thank you for the precious gift of Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we give gifts and as we receive gifts and as we share time with others in this Christmas season, 
that we will have the boldness to proclaim the truth about it, to put it in perspective, to declare the glories of what you have done. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled today's sermon, Meanwhile, Joseph, because in the Christmas season, we get a lot of attention, of course, on, on the fantastical things of it, the, the angels that come and visit and, and proclaim his goodness, and Mary, who is the mother of our Lord, and, and the special work that God did through her, and then the shepherds and the magi. There's a lot of interesting characters here, and I want to spend a little bit of time to look at Joseph. I think he gets overlooked sometimes, but his role is so critical in this account that we need to understand it. Now, the first thing we saw in the text there uh, was that Mary was found to be with child. She was found to be with child. And this was, of course, before they came together. If you're careful and you take a look at the uh, at the accounts in Luke and, and Matthew and you put things together and put them in order, what you realize is Joseph, or Mary had the visit from the angel, and we assume that conception took place pretty much right there or right after that. And then she travels to her relative Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, and spends about three months with her because she was in her sixth month, and Mary stayed there until the birth. So she spends about three months or so there, which is in another part of the land of Israel, and then travels back home. And so by the time she gets back home, she's at least three months pregnant, and by that time, probably showing. It would be obvious that she were pregnant, and there's always somebody that's very discerning, and even though it might not physically be showing in the belly, even though maybe she could wear loose clothing or anything else, there are other people and especially women are gifted with this and especially grandmothers are gifted with this that they can look at the face of a woman who is with child and know and so she comes back and she is found to be with child and it was before they came together in other words they were legally bound together their betrothal which is akin to our engagement, was legally binding. Unlike our engagements, where nothing's legally binding until everyone says, I do, at the ceremony in their time, when the betrothal, when the proposal was accepted, as it were, it was legally binding. But then there would later be a wedding ceremony, and only at that time would the man and the woman come to cohabitate together and live together and consummate their marriage. So this uh, is is important. This angel visits him in a dream. And this illustrates a great principle from the scripture, this conception that we're seeing, that these things are happening by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we see uh, foretold in things like Zechariah 4.6. As we go there, we see this. It says, no, my, uh, it says, then he said to me, and this is the situation with Zerubbabel, and they're worried about building the temple. And Zerubbabel is receiving encouragement from prophets in order to finish building the temple. And the prophet Zechariah is one of these prophets encouraging him. The Lord gives him a message to Zerubbabel, and the Lord is talking about getting the temple built and finished. 
so that there can be a proper dwelling place of God among man. But as you read the prophet Zechariah, you realize, okay, some of the things that the Lord is speaking of go beyond a mere building. They go beyond a mere temple. He's talking about something greater. He's talking about a greater temple. And he says it like this to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, I'm going to accomplish these things by my spirit. And just like he accomplished the building of the temple then by the power of his spirit, encouraging prophets to encourage those who were responsible for building the temple, to encourage the people of God to, to rally together, so he is accomplishing by the spirit the bringing of Christ, the conception of our Lord. And this is the mark of things that God is doing as he does them according to his power. In Hosea 1.7, it says it like this, I'll have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, when you read the scriptures, you find out there are times when the Lord saved the people of Israel by the sword and the bow and the war horses and the people. But he's talking about something greater, a vision of ultimate salvation, something that's going to come, that's going to be done, not by those things. How's it going to be done? It's going to be done by the Spirit of the Lord. That's why we as God's people, we trust in him and not in our own hands. As it says in the Psalms, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so the Lord accomplishes these things by the power of his Holy Spirit to bring about a salvation plan. Now the people play a role, and we'll talk extensively about that later, but the Lord is fulfilling what was said in the scripture all the way back to Genesis 3.15. As soon as mankind sinned, and he begins to explain that he's going to bring one, he says, uh, to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be an offspring of the woman. And the word there is seed. And according to the biology and the vocabulary of the Hebrews, it was normally the man who contributed what they called the seed. And so they, he tells them something of an enigma. It's the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman that is going to bring these things about. He puts a mystery there, and it's not solved until an angel comes to a young Galilean woman of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, and says, this will be done by the Holy Spirit, who will overshadow you. And so he is born of a woman. He's not conceived by a man. And if you want to understand the theological implications and the purposes of that, I invite you to go Read the book of Romans, particularly chapter 5, which explains that through Adam we receive the condemnation, we receive the death that God pronounced upon the disobedience of Adam from the very beginning. And it appears that these things are inherited according to the men. So every human being that has a human father is under that same condemnation, inherits the penalty of Adam's sin, and also inherits the nature that wants to do it again. So what does God do? 
or he conceives in a woman by the power of the Spirit. One who's not born of a man, but born of a woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a new start. Jesus is called in the scriptures the second or the new Adam. And he's not conceived under sin. He's not under wrath. He is, a, as we were, would see, a new start, a new opportunity. So Jesus of Nazareth was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born. But I don't want you to be confused. The Son of God was not born that day. He was preexistent. This is very clear from the work we did over in John recently, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And this is speaking of Jesus, which becomes very clear in verse 14 of that same chapter. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father of grace and truth. And so he was pre-existent, but he took on flesh. He was fully divine. He took on full humanity. And so we see Jesus Christ as both fully divine and fully human. That is, he's able to perfectly represent mankind before God. Now in the passage that we looked at concerning this, we see in verse 23 here a quote from the Old Testament. And this is given by the angel to Joseph. Um, she will bear a son. You shall call him Jesus for you save his people from his sins. And then Matthew's commentary on this is, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, if you read that whole passage, the word Emmanuel appears again in Isaiah chapter 8. But the concept and speaking of a child being born, it continues on into chapter 9 even. And this whole passage of Isaiah is dedicated to what God is going to do to ultimately and really and finally solve the problems that Israel was having. And look what it says in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, which elsewhere the New Testament attributes to the Lord Jesus Christ. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. See, the human race could not give birth to the eternally pre-existent Son of God. The, the works of mankind and the way we do things in our biology and our temporal nature could not bring forth the One all by itself who was the eternally preexistent Son of God. The Son of God had to be given. But, just like one of us, he was a child that was born. And do you see the enigma there in Isaiah where it says, a child is born, a son is given, and some might look at that and think, oh, okay, that's just a parallelism, it's just being poetic, it's just filling this out to sound nice because this is in poetic form as most of the prophet Isaiah is. But no, it means it seriously. Yeah, a child is born to us as in the human race, as in the, the Israelites from Isaiah's perspective, but yet he is a son that is given, something we could not have produced on our own, something that it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to do.
Now, this was only part of the plan. When God says he's going to accomplish things by his spirit, he doesn't just wave a magic wand and save humanity. This is not how he designed our entire reality. In fact, all of creation, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, all of creation had over it and administering it a particular being that was to administer all things in it. There's a bring order to what was still not completely ordered. That was to have dominion over all of creation and the earth and everything in it, and that being is mankind. And so when God says, okay, I'm going to accomplish this by my spirit, well, he's going to accomplish it by his spirit, but he's going to do it through his people. The divine image bearers, those whose responsibility it was, this whole creation to administer things over it, to have dominion over it. He is restoring mankind to their rightful and God-given position over creation. Now, he's doing it by the power of his Holy Spirit, but he's always doing it through his own people. And the important thing to understand, if you read the Bible and get nothing else out of it about the nature of mankind, you see very clearly through the Scripture that not all people are God's people. We're not all children of God, as some people like to say. That there are people in the world who deny God, who rebel against God, who stay in their rebellion against God, but there are some people that come to him by faith. And we even see this in the Old Testament, and it doesn't say a whole lot about faith in the Old Testament, but it shows it in the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament is the concrete version of the abstract principles revealed in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. When there's ever a principle revealed in the New Testament, we see it illustrated in the Old. And this, this about faith comes in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, consider all the people of old, they showed their faith by what they did. So we read the Old Testament, and it's like, you know, Abraham says, you know, or God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to take you from your nation, from your father's house. I'm going to show you a place. I'm going to make you a great nation and bless all the nations through you. Well, how do we know that Abraham had faith? Well, because he went where God told him to go. He did what God told him to, to do. And so it goes with all those that follow, all through the Old Testament, those who obeyed him, who obeyed his law, who by faith stepped out and did what his prophets told them to do and what his law told them to do. And look at it right here in Matthew chapter 1. As we take a look at Joseph, an angel comes to him in a, in a dream, and he was a just man unwilling, and he was going to... Uh, divorce her quietly, but when the angel comes, the angel says, you know, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And he does it. He, he obeys the, the angel. He does what he was told to do. And this is very important because he continues to do what he was told to do, and if he hadn't, things could have been very disastrous because the angel comes to him yet again and says, you got to get out of here. The bad people are coming. You need to take the child and, and leave. Go to Egypt. And so he went to Egypt. Then after they were there a while, well, the Messiah, Jesus, had to be brought up in his own land. And once it was safe to go back, the angel says, hey, go back. And he does. 
And so he is obeying, he is showing his faithfulness to God, his belief that God is really going to do all that he says that he's going to do. But something else stands out about Joseph, and, and it's here in verse 19 that a particular word's used about him. It says, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is a very interesting point here. If you understand what happens and you do a little homework and you go into the Old Testament and you find out that indeed, you know, if someone were convicted of adultery, it carried the death penalty. Well, if he had never been with Mary and they were legally betrothed, they were legally married to one another and she's found to be with child, then the obvious logical conclusion is she committed adultery. Unless, of course, she had miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. But who's going to believe that? And so finding her in this condition, he had all right, and indeed, according to the law, had the law on his side to turn her over to the authorities, to bring her before the elders of his community and say, hey, look, she's with child and it's not mine. And the death penalty was prescribed for that. Stoning for adultery. Now, even in their time, even though that was in their law, they rarely applied the death penalty in any case in those days. The Jewish people, that is. Rather, what they would do is in a case like this, bring the person before the authorities and offer them to public disgrace they would become a pariah. They would become accursed among their people. They would be an outcast, but they wouldn't kill them. Some might suggest that would be better. This man, Joseph, it says he was a just man, but technically according to the law, he should have turned her in. Is that a contradiction? Does not just mean you're doing right by the law, by the letter of the law? Well, in God's economy, he's more concerned with the spirit of the law. He's more concerned with mercy because that's what he has shown. And he instructs us to show as well. It says Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame. That is, he had some affection, some respect for her. And just like God, when mankind broke his law, he delayed that death penalty. Just like Israel, when they broke his law again and again and again, he continued to have mercy on them and send them prophets and be patient with them and did not utterly destroy them. And even when he exiled them, according to his plan that he had given, he had mercy on them and brought them back into the land to continue to work with them and bring forth the Messiah. So what we see here in verse 19 is we see, as the Lord said about David, this would be a man after his own heart. He's going to forgive. He's going to have mercy. But there are other markers that show 
Joseph's membership among God's people, he's given dreams. And I don't know if you ever noticed this before. In the Bible, very often there's people given dreams, and the dreams very often, in fact, more often than not, come in pairs. Joseph is given two pairs of dreams. He's given the first dream that says he ought to do this, and then paired with that in the narrative is the, the dream he's given where the angel speaks to him and he has to go to Egypt. And then when he has to return, he's given a dream, hey, it's time to go back to the land. But he goes to the land and he finds out, okay, the wrong guy is kind of in charge down there in Judah. And he receives another message in a dream that says, why don't you go up to Galilee? Two pairs of dreams. You notice Joseph had a pair of dreams that really got him in bad terms with his family. Those were two dreams. And so they sell him into slavery. He goes into prison, and in prison he interprets two dreams. And then after a couple years, the guy who, you know, the dream really benefited kind of forgot about him, but then Pharaoh had two dreams. And Joseph interprets those dreams, and it changes everything for him. And he ends up saving his people Israel, interestingly. When you go into Daniel, you find Daniel interprets two dreams. One of those dreams saves his people, and the other dream saves his people. And this is something that was foretold by the prophet Joel, and it was mentioned in the book of Acts that one of the signs of God continuing his plan, of God moving things on to the salvation of Israel and the blessings of all other nations, is that there'll be some dreams along the way. And Joseph's the only one I've found in the Bible that has four. It's very interesting because when you go back and you read those dreams and you read about, you can find relevance in all those dreams to the things, to the events unfolding here and the fulfillment of things in Jesus Christ. One of which, of course, being Joseph's dream of the sun, moon, and stars in which they represent the mother and the father and the offspring. So it's great blessing to all these things come here to Joseph in these dreams. Joseph's lineage is another great sign, and the verse seven, first uh, 17 verses of Matthew record the lineage of Joseph and record the fact that he is indeed of the house of David. Not just the house of David, he, of course, is Jesus is born of a woman, but um, that woman and that man are the seed of Abraham through the tribe of Judah through the family of David. All the way down to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the next point, which is according to his word. So we see these, these uh, three points here in the way God tends to do things. These are seen probably most clearly in the text through the names and titles given to Jesus. If we go back to the text and we look there at verse 118, we see the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So the narrator, uh, Matthew, who has put these things together, uh, the church was already in the habit at the time Matthew was writing of calling him Jesus Christ. Jesus being his given name and Christ being his title, the anointed one, the translation of the Old Testament Messiah. Well, Jesus is fascinating in itself because it means Yahweh is salvation. It's the same as the word Joshua back there in the book of Joshua in Deuteronomy. And then, of course, the Christ being the anointed one or the chosen one. But you notice in this passage, in verse 23, 
They say, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And I've got to be honest, when I was a kid and I was going to church, and we always went to church around Christmas, you know, we made sure to then, we, you know, for some years we went pretty regularly uh, all the year, but I remember Christmas in particular, and I remember being confused singing the hymns to Emmanuel. Well, is his name Jesus or is it Emmanuel? And it's difficult for us because that's how we operate as human beings, except, you know, you move to a place like this, you find out three-fourths of the people you know go by their middle name. Rather interesting. But the Bible throws around names in such a way as names are not necessarily what your parents give you and what you walk around with all your life. The names are often descriptions of you that are pertinent to the situation, to what's going on, to what you're going to do, to who you ultimately are. And he is ultimately God with us, according to the prophet Isaiah. See, God fulfilled this in his word. I want to bring salvation to Israel. I'll name him Jesus. I'm going to bring an anointed one, a Messiah. And that translates as the Christ. I'm going to bring God to be with us. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is. This is what the prophet Isaiah said when he talked about the word of God. He said, just like the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they don't go back up to heaven without watering the earth and making it bring forth and sprout and, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see how he's using the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit working through the people of God and according to his word that he laid down beforehand to bring us the Lord Jesus Christ? And the encouragement that we have today is, is very simply this that God continues to work in this way. He continues to work in the world by the power of his Holy Spirit through his holy people according to his holy word. See, the work of Jesus Christ is not complete. It is not finished. That he has come the first time, and yet the Bible speaks even more of other things he will do when he comes, which are all put off until this second time, the second coming. And as we celebrate Christmas, part of our celebration really needs to be not just how great it was that he came, but how great it is. And with the great certainty, we know he's coming again. And he will finish all things because we're in this interim period where what he did the first time is bearing its fruit and it's going out into the world and many, many millions of people are being saved. And the longer he delays and the longer he waits, the greater this number of people becomes from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. But at some point, there's going to be a grand separation. And all those that have believed the word of God, all those that have partaken of Jesus Christ, are going to be perfected in him to spend eternity with him in the new heaven and new earth. But those that have refused him, that love the darkness more than the light, those who have turned their back on the God who has plainly revealed himself in all that has been made and most clearly revealed himself in Jesus Christ, they will be forever separated from the rest in a place of eternal torment.
So meanwhile, there's work to be done. And the way we do that work is, first of all, we understand how God does that work, and we understand he does it by the power of his Spirit through his holy people according to his word. And Jesus gives a great commission. He says, hey, wait, wait there in Jerusalem until the power of the Spirit comes on you. Then you'll be my witnesses. And what are they going to witness? What are they going to say? And we read the book of Acts and we see, okay, the way the apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus, the ones who ministered with him and saw his miracles and saw him die and saw him rise again, those thought it was most important to take the word of God and proclaim it to people. And the Spirit empowers us to do that. And our mission is really that simple. We continue by the power of the Spirit to bring forth the Word of God, and this is how people are saved. And there will not be anyone saved that will not be part of that program. Something God does in his interaction with Joseph here is he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Did you ever notice that before? Yeah, Mary's going to bear the son and, and the angel did tell Mary what his name was going to be, but then tells Joseph, you're going to call him Jesus. That's because naming rights in the Jewish tradition belong to the Father. That's why when Zechariah was visited by an angel, the angel says, you're going to name him John. You are going to name him John. And then he obviously had lost the ability to speak because of his interaction with this angel. And when it comes time and the, and the child is born and they're talking about a name and everything, they're like, oh yeah, we'll give him a family name. Yeah, we'll probably do that, whatever. He's like, no, no. it's motioning wildly because he can't say anything yet. And then he writes it down. His name is John. And the angel says to Joseph, who did not conceive the child, you will name him Jesus. Even though the child wasn't conceived by his power, but it was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he gets the naming rights. And Jesus assembles for himself people who believe through the testimony of the Word of God the things that the apostles said. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And then he says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go out there and you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to make disciples of all nations. He gave us naming rights. Because he told Peter, he said, look, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. That doesn't mean we name and claim it. What it means is we take the message and these people are born again. And they're born again, not just into a... Uh, a, an impersonal and amorphous people of God. No, they're born again into their local people of God. Those who brought them the message. They're added to their number. Their identity is changed from being a member of the world to being a member of the people of God. 
This is how God accomplishes things through his faithful people. It was Christ who came. It was Christ who laid down his life. It was Christ who took it up again. And it's Jesus Christ who gives people life. It's the Holy Spirit of God that convicts people. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that regenerates people. It's the Holy Spirit of God that leads them into, into faith in Jesus Christ. So all glory goes to God, but he does it through us. You and I. And there will not be any human being in our community or in our families saved that will not be saved through the ministry and the testimony of the people of God, you and me. So this holiday, let's tell people the word of God. Let's continue this great work. Let's take the example of a man who gave up his reputation because there were rumors. He gave up the right to have his own firstborn. He gave up many things. He gave up his place where he lived because he had to take the child away. But he got to be the earthly father of our Lord Jesus. And we still talk about him today. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good as to include us in your plans. Write on our heart the truth that this is how you'd plan things from the beginning, that we would administer your will upon the earth. And Lord, I pray that you will give us an understanding of the weight of that responsibility and privilege. And that with that reassurance and with that understanding, Lord, that we will be bold to open our mouths and tell people what it is that we're celebrating that we're celebrating the birth of our Savior. Emmanuel, God with us. We are celebrating the pre-existent Word of God come to dwell in the flesh, come to give His life an offering pleasing to you on our behalf. We pray, Lord, this day that we will understand these things and that we will proclaim these things. For your goodness has established this beautiful order. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.